Revelation chapter 19. I said before, and uh, it might end up being the theme of my preaching ministry, uh, because I've said it a lot of times before, and I keep coming back to the same truth. Who God is and what he does ought to make a difference in the way that we live our lives. And if there is anywhere in the scripture that God displays his character and his actions so prominently, it's at the very end. Revelation chapter 19, this is in Revelation 18, Babylon falls. And in 1820, there is a command, a call issued out to rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. That call is responded to in Revelation 19. Read with me as we read together the first 10 verses. Jim, will you touch this down? Thank you. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Pray with me. Father, as we approach your throne, as we hear the praises of these elders and these creatures and these angels and these saints and these prophets and these apostles, God, as we look forward to the day when our voice will join the mighty throng in heaven, praising you into eternity future, singing your hallelujahs, singing of the holiness of you, singing of the salvation and the glory and the wisdom and the might and the blessing and the honor and the power that belong to you. Father, may we never feel as homesick as we do as we read these verses. May we anticipate those days of excitement. And may we be ever vigilant to do the work you sent us here to do as we prepare for an eternity singing your praises. In Christ's name we pray these. Amen. I don't know if you noticed this, one, two, three, four. Four times in this passage, the word's repeated. You know what word it is? Hallelujah. Four times. Verse one, 
After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Verse 3, once more they cried out, Hallelujah! Verse 4, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! Verse 6, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! Did you know these are the only four times in the New Testament that the word hallelujah appears? This is it. All of Paul's writings, not once. The four Gospels, never mention it. Only here, in this one chapter, do we hear that word. We hear it all throughout the Old Testament. It, it's a Hebrew word that's been transliterated into Greek. So a translation is when you take a word in one language and you find the word in the other language that means the same thing or real close. Transliteration is when you don't even have a word for that. So you just spell that word in your alphabet. That's what they did. They didn't have a word for praise the Lord. That, that wasn't a word in Greek. So they made one up. They just spelled out the way it sounded. And that's the Greek word hallelujah that goes with the Hebrew word hallelujah. The Hebrew word is not an exclamation. It's a command. Hallelujah. Praise Yahweh. Praise the Lord. It's a command. It calls us not just to celebrate, not just to be excited, but to offer praise to God. It is a command. You know, we think of hallelujah, and we think of this as something we say when we're here, we hear good things and so we're supposed to say it. That's not what it is at all. No, it's an injunction to give all of our devotion, all of our praise, all of our worship, all of our adoration directly to God. And four times in this one chapter, the command is issued. Why are they praising God? What's so praiseworthy? Well, read Read at the end of verse 1. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. These things are talking about, uh, it, it kind of overlaps with his actions, but these things are talking about his character. Salvation is not just an action of God, it is the character of God. It is God's character to redeem fallen humanity. It is God's character to take what is broken and fix it. Take what is irreconciled and make it reconciled. That's part of his character. Now, yes, that comes to us in action form. Comes to us through a son going to a cross and dying for the sins of the world, though he had no sin himself. But that action is motivated by a character of God. Power. That's another we think of it as an action word because it's exercise, it's authority, it's might, it's the ability to do something. Not just the capability, but the authority behind it. When, when the seal on the tomb was broken and the stone was rolled away, it was not just God demonstrating his capability of moving a stone, but his authority to override Pilate. It was not just a picture of God being stronger than death, but of him having authority over death. Glory, or as some people like to say, glory. You don't really, it's hard to describe glory. It's a lot easier to kind of kind of think about what it's like. When we see these pictures in Revelation of God 
seated on his throne. And there's, there's light all around him. And, and you can't quite see him because the light is so bright. And there's, there's these rainbows of color surrounding him. And there's all these creatures bowing down to him, singing his praises day and night, night and day. This, this idea of glory begins to come to mind. When you think about the goodness of God, the, the character, the, the holiness and the majesty and the righteousness and the purity and the wisdom and the justice, when you think about the aspects of God altogether, it, 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 draw, it draws you into this awe, this, 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 you can't even define it, but all you know is he's glorious. There's just no real way to describe it, is there? And that's the character of our God. Now, how do we know that salvation belongs to him? How do we know that glory is his? How do we know that power is his? How do, how do we know that? Verse 2, for his judgments are true and just. You see, the character of the individual will drive the actions that he does. But the actions that he does provide evidence of the character which has driven them. So I'll give you an example. If a tree starts to grow fruit, but all the fruit is in bad shape, it's all real small, it doesn't get real ripe, it goes from not quite ripe to rotten, rotten already, or if the tree doesn't produce any fruit at all, when it should be, it's got good nutrients, and you're taking good care of the plant, you know it's a bad tree. You don't know it's a bad tree because you've examined it on the cellular level. You don't know that it's a bad tree because uh, there's a giant hole in the middle of it, maybe, but you know it's a bad tree just because it's not producing good fruit, right? You'll know a tree by its fruit. What is that? That sounds familiar. Oh, yeah. Jesus talks about us, and he says of us that you'll know the tree by the fruit. He says of us, I am the vine, you are the branches. If any man remains in me and bears fruit, prune him so that he'll bear more fruit that he meant is not bear fruit he gets cut off and he gets thrown into the fire. Why? Because he's a bad branch. Right? He doesn't bear the character of the good vine that he is supposedly drawing life from. You see, when a tree is bearing good fruit, you know it's a good tree. When a tree is not bearing good fruit, you know it's not a good tree. And in the same way, a man's character shows you, uh, a man's character shows up in his actions. So you look at his actions over a long period of time and you can discern the type of character he probably is. Now, we're not perfect at this. We're, we're lacking in this. But God isn't. The, his judgments are true and just. There's two ideas of this. One is that they're right. God looks at something and makes a judgment. He's right. You know, we can mess things up. How many times have you heard the story on a news broadcast of someone being released from prison after being in for a decade or two decades based on new evidence that overturned the conviction? So he is, he is uh, charged with a crime. He is convicted in a court of law by a jury of his peers. He's sent away to prison, swearing the whole time, I didn't do it, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. And I, normally you don't listen to criminals when they're when they're saying, I didn't do it, right? But in this case, he was right. He didn't do it. And later evidence showed that he didn't do it, and he's now having to be released. And 20 years of his life, maybe, or 15 years, or 10 years, or, or more, just taken away from him. 
That's injustice. God doesn't do that. Because when God looks at the situation, he makes an accurate assessment of what's going on. So when God says you're guilty, there's no, I didn't do it. Because you did do it. Because his judgments are true. But his judgments are also just. He doesn't get bribed into, you know, this side's really right, but this side paid me more. So I'm going to rule in favor of them. That God doesn't do that. It's not going to do with money anyway. <laughs> you can't bribe him. He's not going to be unfair. He's not going to treat one person better or worse than another person just because of their status or just because they say, I'm a believer or I'm in church every Sunday or just because they say, well, you know, I've got lots of money and I can really hook you up. He's God, for goodness sakes. His judgments are just. That shows me that if you look at God's actions, you can see the nature of his character. If you look at what God does, you can see the nature of who he is. Now, you don't get a perfect view just by looking at what he does. You look at creation and you can be amazed and wonder. You can look at the stars in the sky and you, you can look at the, the single cell microorganisms. You can look at all sorts of different things in the world around us that he has created, that he has handmade. You can look at the wonder that is a human life from the time that it's conceived all the way to the time that he takes his last breath. And you can still not know God. We're not very good at interpreting the evidence, are we? Are we? No, not without him. But he doesn't have that problem. If you're willing to listen, if you're willing to look, if you're willing to let God lead you, you'll be amazed. You'll be absolutely amazed at how much you can learn about him just from looking at what he does. That's probably the best reason I can give you to read your Bible every day. Because when you immerse yourself in his word, you're going to get to know him. Whether you're reading five minutes or five hours a day, you're going to get to know him. I, you probably need a little bit more than five minutes to be really on track spiritually, but I'll take five minutes over nothing. I, I'll be honest with you. I've been reading through the Bible this year, and... Leviticus is a lot harder to read than, than Colossians. It's much easier to read certain books than other books. I get that. There are passages that I, I'm looking at and I'm thinking, okay, Lord, this is your word. I know, I know that this matters. God, you're going to have to help me a little bit because I'm not quite seeing it. And then there's other times when I read and it's like words are jumping off the page at me and I'm overwhelmed. I have to stop reading. Because I'm overwhelmed. I've had days where it's taken me a couple of days to do one day's worth of reading, not because I'm lazy and not doing it, but because every time I start reading, he blows me away. And I have a lot to chew on. It's the nature of God, though. The more you look at his actions, the more that you read his words, the, the more that you see what he does and what he says, the better you get to know him, his character. And that's exactly what's going on in verse 2. Now, how do we know that he is, that salvation and glory and honor belong to him? Well, because his judgments are true and just. Well, how do we know that his judgments are true and just? Chapter 18. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. You see, because he has judged this worldly system, this religious, economic, political system that reigned supreme, until God brought it down. It wasn't really supreme, just thought it was. 
just acted like it was. God touches it, brings it down, and all of heaven just stares in amazement at how just and true his judgments are. Just how powerful, and just how glorious, and what great salvation this God is able to bring. She corrupted the earth. She avenged. She, she poured out the blood of the saints. And now it has been avenged. That goes back to Revelation 6. In Revelation chapter 6, there's a, there's the, uh, I believe it's chapter 6, and maybe chapter 7. Hold on, let me go back. I don't want to, I always hated it. There would be some, I, I'd be listening to a preacher that would misquote something, and I'd turn to a verse and I'd look at it and I'd say, that's not right. And, but he'd never correct himself. And so I want to make sure I'm telling you right. Revelation chapter 6. There it is, verse 9. When, I, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told the rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. They don't have to rest anymore. They don't have to wait anymore. Because he has brought judgment. No wonder they cry out again. Hallelujah! Verse 3. The smoke from her, from the from what H.B. Charles called the harlot city. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The idea is the torment, the, the destruction of Babylon is permanent. You go today, you can actually find Babylon. You can find people living in the area. It's in modern day Iraq. You can go there. You can see people still living in and around the city. You can still see some of the ancient sites. When Babylon is destroyed in chapter 18 of Revelation, there's going to be no more of that. It's just going to be smoke. That's the only evidence that will be left of her destruction. And that evidence will be marked upon the pages of eternity future. It's like when you, it's like if you're reading a book and you spill some coffee and it gets on the side, and so it kind of runs down all the pages. It doesn't matter how quickly you wipe it up. It already leaves that stain. And forevermore, that stain will be on all the pages, right underneath it. The smoke of her will stain every page of eternity. A stain that will remind us just how good and true, just how righteous and just God's judgments are. The elders, by the way, there's some debate about who this is. Who is this great multitude? Is this the saints crying out? Is this the angels crying out? Uh, who is it that's crying out? Uh, yes, because by the end of this chapter, everybody's crying out, hallelujah. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm almost wondering if this isn't like a, 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 round, a round song, like row, row, row your boat gently down the stream where everybody's singing it, but they're all coming in at different times. Um, now the 24 elders and the four living creatures, verse 4, fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. It's a call to worship. And it's a call to worship for eternity future in the hymn of Amazing Grace. When we've been there 10,000 years, Christ shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. That's got to be a big God for us to praise him for a thousand years and still keep going. But this is a God who's worthy of that praise. Verse 6, Then 
I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. So you had one multitude. Now you've got another multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Now, now it's time for the marriage feast. The bride is finally adorned. You see, it was, verse 8, granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. It's almost as if, it's almost as if God has provided with his bride, the church, with her garments of righteousness. In fact, that, that's exactly what it is. Remember, remember the parable of the great banquet where the master sends out invitations, but people make lame excuses and they don't show up. And then he's like, just invite whoever will come. Just bring them in. Bring them. I don't care who they are. I don't care where they're from. Do whatever you got to do. Compel them to come in, right? Well, it's time for the feast. And the bride doesn't have a dress. He says, don't worry, I got you covered. And he gives her the linen of her righteousness. Not a righteousness that's been earned, not a righteousness that has been accomplished by them. It's not our righteousness, it's his righteousness. But it's a righteousness that because of him, we can actually do. It, it would be like, it would be like you doing something with your toddler and the toddler isn't really doing it, but thinks they're doing it but you're really doing it. And then they say, I did it. And you're like, you did it. That's exactly what it's like. God, in his holiness and in his perfection, enables us to do the things that he calls us to do. And those righteous works become the very clothes that we wear at our wedding. You see, apart from Christ, we are not righteous at all. But in Christ, our righteousness is the finest. And as beautiful as my bride was on her wedding day, have a feeling that that day, that bride, will be immaculate. And the angel, verse 9, said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This isn't just those who are invited, because some who are invited say no. This is those who are invited and accept the invitation and come. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then something interesting happens. All throughout this book, John has been talking to angel after angel after angel. I should go through and count all the angels that John talks to. Because there's just numbers, there's scores of angels that he speaks with. Scores of angels that explain things to him or that, that bring him into other parts of the vision or that, that ask him questions or that he asks them questions to try to understand what's going on. There's this other angel who gives him this message and never before, never until this moment, does John bow before any of the angels. Until this one. After seeing, he is so overwhelmed by the sight, he is so overcome in praise that he bows before the angel in front of him, and the angel says, no, 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 get up, get up, get up. That's, uh-uh, not me, him. Don't, don't, don't worship me. I'm, I'm just a servant. Worship him. You see, because his testimony, that's what's been linking everything together. Go back to the oldest of prophets. Go forward to the latest martyrs and saints and you will find a testimony of Christ now yes it sounds different between old and new testaments old they're looking ahead they know Messiah's coming they don't know when 
They don't know who. They know he's coming, and they're preaching him. They're preaching repentance. They're preaching people to turn to God, preaching to people to trust in him, preaching to people to do the works of righteousness. And in the New Testament, we have the advantage. We get to know who it is. And so we look back and we say, it was him. He was the one all the Old Testament prophets were pointing to. Look at him. Look at him. Look at him. And everybody, past, present, future, are all pointing to that same individual, that same Jesus Christ, who is the one upon which our history turns. That's what links all this together. From the moment of in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The, and then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. From God saying to man, be fruitful and multiply, God saying to man, the spirit of the bride said, come. The thing that links the entire Bible together is that it's all pointing in the same direction. All of it points to Jesus Christ. That's why you keep seeing this word, hallelujah, here. That's why you keep hearing the praises of this group and then that group and then that group all joining together. That's why this is the revelation of Jesus Christ and not the what's going to happen, not of how to interpret the times so you know when the end is coming. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ because he's the one that we all should be for. Father, I pray that our nature, that our character, and that our actions, our words, and our deeds, just as the prophets and the apostles, just as Genesis to Revelation all point to Jesus Christ, I pray that our character and our actions would point to him too. Lord, we know that who you are and what you've done ought to make a difference in the way we live our lives. It ought to bring us to worship. It ought to bring us to repentance. It ought to bring us to know what true love is. Father, may we have that same kind of influence on others. May our character and our actions point them to you. May who we are and what we do be a reflection of who you are and what you do. And may you receive all the glory because you're the only one who deserves it for being God. Help us know better with that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.